hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Mark Blythe is the butcher's kid from Dundee who became a famous professor in the U.S. who hung on to his Scots accent and his working class biases and who drops back into the pub now and then to explain world history unfolding all around us. If you don't believe Mark Blythe has all the answers, just ask him. He saw the Brexit revolt coming and the Trump hostile takeover because, he says, he had seen a collapse of faith in the dying political order that had just delivered the war in Iraq and then the Wall Street breakdown of 08. Mark Blythe is an acquired taste who becomes habit for a lot of us, a required 50,000-mile checkup on everything. He re-enters this time, talking, of course, a mile a minute, about a choice or a deadlock of populisms, plural, about the odds of a recession and what could or should have happened 10 years ago. Trump's not your problem. What is? The entire system is your problem. Trump's a symptom. Trump is not the cause. You can fixate on Trump all you want. You can do the Mueller report. You can get distracted with all this stuff. But then you have to think, gee, but there's not just Brexit. You've now got the entire anti-EU squad in charge of the British Conservative Party headed by Boris Johnson, who is basically a posh version of Trump. Posh? Very. Eaten. All that sort of stuff. It's true. Right. And uh, then we go look at Italy. Italy's went from being sort of, you know, two populist parties who don't like each other falling out. Now the uh, Five Star are going to get together, it looks like, with the PD. That won't last very long. And basically, populism's gone structural everywhere. Centre parties have basically given up the ghost. Uh, Don't read too much into German regional elections, but once again, the main parties lost vote share to the AFD in the Eastern Lander. So uh, this is more of the same. And, you know, when one you of say the, gun structural, that means they're... Look, what it means is the following. In 2008, an entire economic and political order should have collapsed in the financial crisis. Hmm. Instead of which, the central banks around the world basically did a massive monetary infusion of about 20% of global money supply and brought the whole system back to life like Frankenstein's monster. It's been chugging along since then on a diet of denial and austerity. And we're about to go into a cyclical recession because, of course, you don't go on forever. The business cycle still exists. Uh, There was a Fed report came out two weeks ago that uh, 60% of Americans still haven't recovered where they were in terms of wealth since 2007. You don't need a big recession for this to be painful because people's financial and capital cushions haven't been rebuilt for the majority of people in this country. Uh, Europe itself has been grinding itself to death on a diet of austerity and exports, which means squeezing consumption and squeezing wages to remain competitive against the Chinese. So it's the entire system that's the problem. That system should have been failed 10 years ago, and we should be getting to the end of rebuilding it. But we haven't done that. What's happened is the populace have taken over, and they're the ones that are going to rebuild it, mainly in ways that we don't like. Come back to the nature of this recession, if that's the word. Bill Mark has made a career, very unpopular now, for predicting it and rooting for it. This is the only way we'll bring these bastards down. The New York Times, it seems to me, flirts with it all the time. They're warning, 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 and you wonder, are they rooting? Would a recession be Trump's fault? No, recessions are never politicians' fault. They get blamed for them 
But are you basically saying the actions of this one guy in the global economy on trade has triggered a recession? The United States has been expanding for 10 years, albeit slowly and unevenly. There is such a thing as the business cycle. Eventually it turns. Some sod has to be in power when it goes up. Another sod has to be in power when it goes down. Trump certainly hasn't helped, but by the same token, you could have went 18 months ago and said, look at that ridiculous tax cut he did. It powered the economy to 3% growth for a whole year. Hmm. So was he responsible for that? How do we play this? He was responsible for the tax cut. No, no you're the one who's trying to put responsibility on a single person for a recession. No, 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 I'm not. I read the New York Times and say, why are they betting on a recession? Should we be betting on a recession? The only way that makes sense is if you think that if there's a recession, somehow that will get rid of Trump because you think Trump's the problem. I think Trump is heinous, a climate-denying sort of uh, bigot, if you want to put it that way. I have no truck with the man. But I don't think he's the problem. He's a symptom. Well, I generally drink to that. Go closer to this trade stuff. So many questions in my mind. Among others, who appointed him to be the solo, emotional, volatile, absolutely unconsulting, unexplaining master of this whole process? Uh, Congress. Um, basically, after the Smoot-Hawley tariffs in the 1930s, the executive branch took control of tariff policy and made it an executive branch prerogative so that they didn't allow Congress to start doing what they did in the 1930s on the belief that no president would go around doing this until they did. So that's why it happened. Let's think about this one. I can make a case, which I believe myself at least, that let's say Trump wasn't president, but there was some other uh, Republican in the White House. And given that you'd had two terms of a Democrat beforehand who had somewhat disappointed, it was entirely likely you would have got a Republican, particularly running against Senator Clinton. So would that person now be giving it to China? I think they would. Why? Because if you talk to any American corporate that works in China, they'll tell you the same story. We put our capital in there. We ring fence it with our tech. We then bring in a third party firm to ring fence it with our tech. And then we know it will all be stolen. Now, every developing country steals tech, but China steals it better than anyone has ever done in human history. (laughs) Now, ask yourself the following question. Why is it the United States gets to print the global reserve currency and do all the bad stuff that it wants to do around the world and everybody's content to hold dollars? The base of that pyramid is because our firms, US firms, control, regardless of where they're situated, about 80% of all the value in global value chains. They control 80% of all the intellectual property. So if you've got a competitor that's coming along and stealing not last year's tech, but this year's tech and next year's tech, suddenly you don't grow as fast as you used to. And if you don't have that differential growth between your corporates and everybody else's, why should people keep investing here? And if they don't, then the dollar gets into trouble and the whole thing starts to fall apart. So any president who would be president would be addressing the fact of IPRs, intellectual property rights. Would they be doing it in this ham-fisted, bludgeoning, and uh, particularly Trumpian way? Probably not, but would be in the same space. And I don't think that that would vary. Well, that comes close to the, the toughest question is, does Trump have a point in this trade war? At the fundamental level of, remind me, why did we give up that Manufacturing base, which was our glory. You can say from a global macro perspective, well, manufacturing jobs always eventually shift because of a combination of technology and costs and nobody gets to keep the manufacturing. Well, not really true. I mean, there are other countries around the world that do manufacturing on the high end from Denmark to Germany to Sweden that manage to hold on to it. But the absolute number of people employed in it goes down. Capital substitutes for labour, that story is absolutely true. That doesn't mean anything to states that have been devastated in a very short period of time, 
And you can look at plastics, toys, furniture, stuff they used to make in, oh, I don't know, all those five states that went mental and voted for Trump, right? And you will find it beginning in 2001, suddenly they don't have capacity. Hmm. It starts to fall off a cliff. Now, you may have some economists walking in and saying, well, globally, we're talking about winners and losers and we can compensate the losers. There was no compensation. They got stuffed. Their towns shut down. So as far as they're concerned, that was a bad thing and Trump's doing something about it. Now, you might not Mm. agree with that. You might see it in a different way, but that's why he has a base and the Democrats don't. How does this trade war come out? Or does it ever end? I was telling myself two stories, and this is where the irascibility of Trump comes into play. Because we know he's not a genius, but you know that he's got instincts. And you know that you've got people around him putting Navarro away. He's, he's a bit of a sideshow. You've got people around him, serious corporates who are basically saying, look, we can't do business in China. We are literally being exploited at the point of an offer for market access in exchange for all your tech. And we literally can't do this. So as I've said, I think there would be these trade tensions there anyway. Now, what the United States has got going for it, and the reason that they're able to play this game is very important. They have the global reserve currency. If you want to be an exporter like Germany, when you export, you get paid in dollars. You can't use dollars in your banking system, so you need to turn them into an asset. You can go buy foreign stuff. You can turn them into French houses. But then the French have a problem. What do you do with the dollars, right? So the easiest thing to do is buy a 10-year treasury note. It's interest-bearing. It's totally safe. There you go. And that gives us lower interest rates, which allows us to go out and behave crazily, irrespective of what our politics are, right? The very fact that China can export is contingent upon there being a safe asset in which you turn your, your stuff into, which is the dollar. That's the structural advantage, right? So the U.S. uniquely has this. This is the most important thing. Now, if you do this, you can do a gambling strategy, which is known as a martingale. So a martingale is how you break the bank at Monte Carlo. So I come in and I just double the bet. And if we're playing blackjack, eventually, usually after about seven or nine hands, it will go my way. This is why casinos have table limits to stop you doubling the bet all the time. Because eventually the cards will come my way, in which case I blow you up. Now, the U.S. is the only one that can play that strategy because it has the global reserve asset. So I'll do tariffs, I'll do tariffs, I'll do tariffs, I'll do tariffs. Eventually you get there. Now, I thought what Trump and the people around him were doing was signaling. They're basically saying, look, you should come to the table with what we want and we can negotiate around the edges because we can just keep doing this all day. At which point the Chinese go, okay, they can, so what do you really want? And then we have a thing. But it seems to be the case that Trump doesn't really have an end game. It's just, no, we'll just keep doing this all day. And that's kind of bad because, to quote the head of one of the big farming lobbies, the Chinese market is now lost to us for a generation. There are real mm. costs to this that are beginning to emerge. And that's why I think that Trump is vulnerable. I mean, he's instinctually motivated, but he's overplaying his hand. He's going to eventually you have to know what winning with China is. I don't think he knows what winning with China looks like. Do you? Does anybody know what might be a reasonable correction on what the Chinese do to our. Our patents, for example. Well, it depends. It depends on what you think the problem is, right? So, you know, I'll give you an example. I'll a little anecdote. I was flying across the country a couple of years ago, and uh, I got upgraded, and I was sitting at the front of the plane, which American first-class domestic is like premium economy in the rest of the world, only costs a fortune. So I'm sitting next to this guy, and he's a movie guy, like an actual movie. Like, think a Weinstein character, only hopefully not as sexually horrible. Tarantino. Like. 
No, I'm not even talking. It was not as cool, right? Basically, sort of, you know, somebody, somebody who looked like an accountant but behaved like he was in movies, right? That sort of stuff. <laughs> and I said, so tell me about China. I mean, you know, this stuff about nicking your movies and nicking your tech and all that stuff. And, oh, yeah, it goes on all the time. It's impossible. We invented this new blue screen type thing and, like, they nicked it off our computers and had it running in their movies before we did and then they put a patent on it and, ah, right? So I said, so you think all this stuff's real? Like, totally real. It's ridiculous, all the rest of it. Okay, great. So you would support you know, what they're doing and in tariffs, the trade war and all the rest of it. And he goes, whoa, hang on. China opens 100 movie theaters a week. I'm in the distribution business. <laughs> so what American firms have been doing is trading off market access for tech. Now, has it got to the tipping point? It depends on the sector. It depends who you are. But take Foxconn. Right, so Foxconn's building a factory in the United States, so we're bringing back those jobs. Foxconn three years ago replaced 50,000 workers with automated processes, otherwise known as robots. So their jobs are disappearing too. Now, is it because there's no work to be done? No, there's tons of work to be done. We just won't pay for it yet. We think it has to be a bum in a seat in a factory rather than looking after an aging boomer. We're just not interested in doing that type of work. Not yet. Not yet, but we'll get there. Coming up, one easy way to pay for a Green New Deal. This is Open Source. Mark Blythe's aphorisms have a way of improving with age. It must be 10 years ago that he remarked in conversation that we have an explosive situation on our hands. To it, 300 million Americans, 500 million handguns, and 72% of the people living paycheck to paycheck. And now we have the regular mass shootings to prove it. That's your weekly mass shooting right there. One of the things that's quite interesting about sort of the angry 40-year-old white guys who consistently do this, a lot of them have just been fired. Well, there you go. Mark Blythe, let's talk about what we have always called neoliberalism, basically marketize and globalize. Cornel West says monetize, privatize, militarize. But I have a slightly different one. Go for it. Privatize, deregulate, globalize and integrate. It is the system, even though you never see it in the New York Times. I don't think much in the Wall Street Journal well, this either. This is what we've grown up with over the past 30. If you're 30 years old, we have a 30-year-old sitting in the room with us, right? This guy has never known anything else. And the anything else that existed was on its last legs 10 years before he was born. So this is it. This is normal, right? This is what Foucault talked about with neoliberalism, the naturalization, the normalization of this so that people literally cannot perceive any other way of doing things. But it's not working for the 30-year-olds, and they do remember their parents or grandparents with a different outlook on life. I just wanted to mention John Lanchester in the London Review six weeks ago, maybe, but he had a wonderful opening of a long piece. But broadly, it's 2019. We know what this century is sort of like. We had a a debt-fueled expansion under George Bush, and then the 08 crash, bank bailout, take care of the bankers but not the homeowners, austerity, recession, automation, globalization continues, stagnant wages, as you say. And then suddenly somebody had the idea of blaming the immigrants, and that sort of flipped the politics and maybe locked it for a while. How do you describe that situation and how long can it go on where in so many ways it's bad for people, it's bad for the planet, it's bad for politics? To me at this point in time, as somebody who takes climate science and climate scientists very seriously, I think that's the only thing that matters. 
pretty much everyone on the other side of this debate is either somebody in denial about it. I like to call them climate nihilists, mm. right? Basically, yeah, it's too difficult to think about, so let's just, like, burn everything, right? Or alternatively, they're bought and paid for by the fossil fuel industry, and that's it. So basically, you're listening to the people that were bought by the tobacco firms, and you're willingly walking around saying tobacco doesn't cause cancer. That's it. Now, here's the counterfactual on why you should take the science seriously. Most of the people who do climate science and climate modeling are very good at math, like really good at math. They could be on Wall Street making a fortune. I know young climate scientists who refuse to even contemplate having children because they have no faith in our ability to arrest us. Mm. So this is number one, the only thing that matters, right? And what are our political classes doing about it? Nothing. Nothing. So get back from trade wars, automation, all the rest. Everything John talked about is right. But basically, 15 years down the line, nature bats last, right? That's the big one, and we're going to have to face up to it eventually. The policy class doesn't respond because presumably their interests have not been immediately threatened or something. Well, I mean, if you think about it, let's say that you live in Florida. Within 15 to 20 years, half of Miami Beach is gone. Either water over the top or seeping underneath billions of dollars of real estate wrecked. It's gone. And uh, when you do that, we might finally smell, wake up and smell the coffee and do something about it. Uh, we, then again, we may not. Now, there's different countries. I mean, do you think China suffers climate change denialism? Absolutely not. They're the largest installer and now the second largest inventor of green tech. They dominate solar. Price production per unit has collapsed. It is 10 times cheaper than it was 10 years ago. Mm. All of that is because China actually takes this seriously. What do we do? We do gizmo startups and then get bogged down in whether the thing is real. Germany takes this astonishingly serious. The German industry is absolutely poised to basically make a killing off of climate science and the fact that we're going to have to adopt that tech. The problem is this. They're so monomaniacally obsessed with paying back the national debt, they forgot to do investment. So their companies are wondering where they're going to get the long-term capital from, even though interest rates over 10 years are negative. But they don't believe this stuff either. So you've got this Anglo culture Mm. of, oh, it's not really true. All you need is more trees. And we're the people who have sold our industries to foreigners so when it comes down to it, we will not be able to build the stuff that we need. We'll need to buy it from the Chinese and the Europeans. The ultimate irony. The general question is, what's holding this neoliberal myth up? Because everybody's got to complain about it. You're saying, citing climate, absolutely one of a kind, top of the list. But take incomes and inequality which we used to be very, very proud of. For 40 years, it's getting worse and worse, and it's getting worser today. I mean, the basic problem here is generational. So baby boomers vote twice as much as millennials. Enough boomers have actually slipped the mortal coil now that millennials outvote them. But it doesn't matter because basically, you know, they're not as politically connected. Now, that's why people like AOC and others are very interesting, because they're trying to basically animate that base, get them involved, get them to see that really the future is yours to lose, because the people who are burning the last part of the candle just now aren't Mm. going to do anything about this stuff, right? If you want to look at stats on climate change denial, the old way more than the young, etc., etc. So there is an attempt to build that coalition, but the institutions that made that, let's say, trente glorieuse or period of income inequality possible... It just simply aren't apparent. The first one was World War II. As Thomas Piketty points out, World War I and World War II basically decimated the aristocracies of Europe. 
and destroyed huge amounts of capital and removed the income from colonialism. So basically, you got a huge leveling simply because of the external shocks. Then you have very large trade unions and labor parties who have basically won the argument after the war that we need to have a full employment redistribution economy. That comes off the rails in the 1970s in a crisis of inflation because the investor class are no longer making any money and national income has swung very heavily towards labor against capital. The neoliberal revolution, Thatcher, Reagan, independent central banks, the revolution economics, free market ideology all comes out of this. And we've Mm. been living the consequences of that for the past 40 years. Now, 10 years ago, that went bang, but was rescued by the central banks. And it's been ticking along ever since. By cheap credit, basically. And not just cheap credit. I mean, basically, once you reflate the banks globally, you can continue to lend. And people are in enough debt that they need to revolve their debts. Interest rates are ridiculously low. So if I'm a bank, I'm borrowing wholesale basically just above zero. And if I'm a credit card company, I'm charging you 26%. What's there not to like about that? Mm. And if you can extend your minimum plus, you can keep that going for 30 years without never clearing your debt. I mean, come on, this used to be called biblical usury, but this is what we do as a business model. So, you know, at the end of the day, you resuscitate this model and we say that neoliberalism is still there. I don't see that. I can see a world that's emerging that's basically a more closed off the United States, that's much more hub and spoke. The upside for this is way less global imperial ambitions, right? They're very much scaling back to be hub and spoke rather than sort of having bases everywhere and trying to control everything. You actually see this in the White House in an interesting way in which they don't know what to do with Iran. So you got Bolton and the people around Bolton going, bomb the bastards. And then you basically have everybody else going, nah, not really, because what's the point, right? We did this. It was a disaster, right? So there's a way in which that's being reconfigured. In terms of you know domestic wages and inflation, you're beginning to see a couple of little bits of gains. The most interesting one is, pop quiz, what's the largest employer in the United States? Walmart. Walmart increased wages. That made a huge difference to the bottom 20 to 40% of the income distribution because they employ so many people. Why did they do that? Because their stores were so awful to go into and there were so many mocking Walmart websites that people were refusing to go there to shop. So they basically had to put a floor under wages to employ people who basically were functional and weren't basically shooting up in the middle of the store so that you could actually go back shopping there again. So... What's neoliberal about this? I mean, I see lots of catastrophes. I see the opioid crisis. I see the skills of a generation wasted. I see indebted millennials. I see angry boomers. I don't see this global mindset called neoliberalism running the show. We're staggering on with what we do every day. Part of the problem is that nobody connects all these important symptoms under any name much less neoliberalism. Well, no, but we try to. We call it, it's neoliberal ideology. And I used to I used to do this. I wrote a whole book about this, right? But these days, I think it's, it's less ideology and more just kind of muddling through with a set of highly complex institutions that are kind of stuck together in ways we barely understand. So glad you mentioned AOC. She's always treated like a Martian, this woman who emerged somehow out of the Bronx. And yet, I think an awful lot of people here, just plain common sense, good heart, a traditional, you know, American. Well, someone who, left someone who looks voice. like and sounds like her constituents, rather well, than some like fat old white guy who's just part of the machine who shows up and collects the votes. I mean, eventually those things get found out. Yeah, but you know what I mean. A in the media, the sort of exoticization of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, but second, her program. 
somebody like you, I think, who puts climate first, would have to sit up and listen around the Green New Deal. I totally do. I think it's a wonderful idea. Talk about it and why it can't seem to get a mainstream common because, sense. We've got to stop using oil. The mainstream is 250,000 people on a parking lot from 95 to 93 sitting in F-150s and Volvos saying, ah, I wonder where I'll go on vacation this year. The consciousness of where we need to be and where we are simply isn't there. Come back to the Green New Deal. The thought of getting off fossil fuels tomorrow is no longer a radical or weird idea. What about the full employment side of it? A universal basic income or a guaranteed job? How much of this could be done? Let's go back to elements of the Green New Deal that have been chucked in the mix, universal basic income. I mean, to me, this is a cool policy looking for an actual problem. The notion that we're running out of work in the face of massive disruption coming from climate change over the next 30 years is the most laughably silly thing I can think of. Mm. Not right. to mention aging population. In right, need, exactly. In yeah, need no, of no, no, we just need everyone care. to sit at home and learn how to play Led Zeppelin solos. No, we really don't. We need all hands on deck. We need basically massive retrofitting of every building in the United States. You, oh, but don't worry, there'll be a robot or an app for that. That's another pile of crap as well. No, work is not running out. So people have this thing, they want it to happen. No, just no, like think, right? Um, second one, I used to be quite critical of the job guarantee because I hate the language. The notion in the United States, the sort of the bootstrapping individualist society where you guarantee jobs, you might as well just say Soviet communism in the minds of half the Republican Party. It's just you're missing what you're trying to do. And what you're really saying is working conditions for most Americans have become so stressful and so disempowering and so low paid that we need to basically make our firms basically raise the bar. How do you do that? You have a public option, which isn't brilliant, but is decent. So you can exit the labour market and go for that, perhaps working on green projects, etc., etc. That means either low-end jobs get automated, which they should, and or employers actually have to share the spoils. And with 90% of productivity gains going to employers and nothing going to labour for the past 30 years, it's about time that they did. So this is a way of raising up the wage floor and basically making work, in a sense, pay, but really pay for workers for a change. So I think that's a good idea. I don't hmm. need to buy into UBI. We could get on to sort of the, the theory of MMT, modern monetary theory. Taxes are uh, kind of garbage. It's functional finance. And uh, the state can just like, issue a coin, give it to the Treasury. The Treasury will do whatever it does, and then we just build the Green New Deal. Well, you actually weirdly can do this in this moment if you're the United States because you have the global reserve asset and nobody else can run. The reason China can get away with a quasi-version of MMT is it owns all the banks and it has three layers of capital controls and it literally is state money. In fact, China is about to roll out a system of state digital money. They are doing crypto. Why do they want that? Because they want to know where every single renminbi is who's got it and who's spending it. It's mass surveillance. That's the end. That's where crypto goes at the end of the day, right? So there's lots of parts of this that I think are great. The United States could do MMT simply because people can't dump their bonds. Could, imagine Argentina tried to do MMT to finance something. Their currency, which is already trading at like 18 cents, would be like two cents in a day because everyone <laughs> would dump their bonds. We have to recognize that the United States is in a unique position. I'm not saying that you can't do MMT in the United States. There would be massive costs for doing it. But I also think it really ignores the politics of this. Because you're going to be facing a Republican Congress. Let's say you win the House of Democrats. You get Bernie in. 
And Bernie comes along and goes, right, let's do MMT. What do you think Congress is going to do? We're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Let's just do this. That's a good one. Everything that we've told our constituents for the past 40 years turns out is a lie. You can spend as much as you want. Well, in a sense, the evidence is there because we spent $3.5 trillion on Iraq and nobody had to pay for it. So we could do the same thing for the Green New Deal. That'd be fine. But then they'd have to admit that they've basically been lying corporate shrills for the past 30 years. While you're up decoding the economic news, decode Jerome Powell of the Fed, appointed by Donald Trump, now at war with Donald Trump, over easing the money supply and keeping interest rates down. The New York Times has an op-ed, only the Fed can save us. No oh, good God. Uh, but this is an old story. Great book from 1986, Bill Grider. He used to work for Rolling Stone. Sure. Secrets of the Temple. Massive good book about the Federal Reserve and money in America. And his basic point is the following. The Fed was set up to stop bank runs amongst the commercial banks of the United States. They used to happen all the time, and it was causing too much ructions. But the quid pro quo for this was to essentially incorporate the public interest and the private interest together, because you were never going to nationalize the banking system. So half the seats in the Fed board are the private banks. Right. So what you've constantly had is a split, whereby it depends how publicly minded the public side is. And they're not often that publicly minded. So the doctrine of a strong currency, sound money, no inflation. Yeah, you've got a full employment mandate as well, or at least a high employment mandate standing from the legacies of the 46 Full Employment Act. But ultimately what the Fed cares about, its constituents, are sound money. And that means positive interest rates, a positive rate of return for lenders. They look after the credit or interest. Historically, what has happened then is that the debtor's interest has been somebody else's problem. Trump's the debtor's class. He is absolutely a billionaire giving money to billionaires. There's no doubt about that. I'm not fooled for a minute. But the people who support him are also people who are in debt. Mm. They also see themselves being ripped off by the banks. And they basically want relief. I mean, you could tie this back to like 1896 and William Jenner and Bryant, silver versus gold. This is a very old story in American history. His constituency wants cheap money. The Fed's constituency doesn't. Now, here's your problem at the end. How about the question of can you live forever on cheap money? Well, you can, and here's why. Money's never going to be expensive again. There's a bunch of work done now on super long interest rates. So interest rates going back to 1314, because we can now put the data together. And when you do this, basically they've fallen from 12% to 10% to 8% to 6% to 4% to 2% to 1%. It's a straight line decline. Why? Nobody really knows. Uh, yeah, there are risky sovereigns. Argentina blows up every now and again. A couple of years ago, they launched a 100-year bond despite defaulting five times in the past 100 years. And uh, it was oversubscribed at 7%. It's now trading at 18 cents on a dollar or something like this. So we never learn. But overall, the global pool of capital is bigger and bigger. People are getting older. They're oversaving. The returns to investment in core countries is declining. Everyone's chasing yield. You're moving into exotic instruments, corporate bonds, collateralized corporate debt obligations, all this sort of stuff. As everybody's hungry for interest rates. And the reason they're behaving that way is because structurally, there's tons of money. Mm. Not in the pockets of people to spend, but in the investor class. And they don't need to invest that much, nor do they have to find an outlet. It's a very old problem. So ultimately, you've got globally long, low, real interest rates. Creates a lot of problems. You're a pension fund and you promised everybody 7%. I don't know where you're going to find it. 
But what it does mean is that governments can borrow 10 to 15 to 20 to 30 years at negative real rates. There is absolutely no reason not to do the Green New Deal through traditional financing, let alone doing it through MMT, because the private sector would love to have 2% guaranteed safe US for 30 years. You could ship a trillion of that out tomorrow and find every single buyer you want. So what's missing here is a failure of political will, which is what we usually see. Mark Blythe teaches politics and economics at Brown University. Coming up, time and tide wait for no man, but will they wait for the policy class to wake up? This is Open Source. Part of the pleasure of Mark Blythe's company is that his commentary is social history as much as it's economics. We can feel like 20th century characters in a 21st century script being rewritten. Well, one thing that we've said already was, you know, populism structural. Gone structural, yeah. So Meaning- it means that we've left the era of neoliberalism or now into the era of neo-nationalism. But what do you mean by nationalism? So people get fixated on the Trump version and people like Bannon and, you know, whatever this Fengali figure behind Boris Johnson is and the billionaires and the dark money and the coaches and the guy who runs Cambridge Analytica was Renaissance Technologies. I love it when the left go mad over conspiracy theories. The simpler way to think about it is quite simple, as we've said before. 60% of the income distribution hasn't had a real pay rise in basically 30 odd years. And um, prices stopped falling and kept gaining and the things that actually marred. People like me walked out and said, but interest rates are low. Well, why am I paying 26% on the credit card? There's no inflation anywhere. Well, why would a visit to the doctors bankrupt me? And that disconnect basically Mm. creates a gap between real perceptions and and then what elites are telling them. And then the elites basically say, oh, everybody has to upgrade their computers, otherwise the world will crash. Remember Y2K? And nothing happened. And then there was the response to 9-11, which basically was two planes filled with Saudis. So we went off to Afghanistan and Iraq. Iraq cost $3.5 trillion, and we're just leaving Afghanistan now, having spent $3.5 trillion. And uh, nothing to show for it except dead bodies everywhere and battlefield injuries and scarred people who will never recover. We have an opioid crisis, which, you know, some of the finest art galleries in the United States are funded by the family who made fortunes off of that. We had a financial crisis where everyone with real money got bailed out and a token people such as Bernie Madoff went to jail, not because of the crisis, because they were just exposed in the crisis for being crooks. The costs of all that were basically spread upon normal people in the form of budgetary austerity, wage stagnation, and then banks do quantitative easing to boost asset prices. Guess who assets are owned by rich? people so the rich continue to get richer we're here i mean that's the story it's dead simple where do we go next that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question i've known you long enough to remember when you said about europe that it's not an economic crisis it's a banking crisis mm-hmm. here we are today with a full-blown political crisis around the world it seems of the bully boy strongman yeah but it's not just a bully boy strongman i mean look is bernie a bully boy strongman no Right, okay, it's Jeremy Corbyn, a bill about strong power either, so... Okay, so, well, who was the first populist government? It was Syriza in Greece. What about Portugal? What about Spain? Right, what about half of Italy? And what about the fact that the most, the most popular party in Germany just now is the Greens? 
Right, we get fixated on the right wing stuff because it, it annoys the liberal classes because people are racist and they're angry all the time. There's a lot more going on than just that. There's a left populism as well as a right populism that basically says, yeah, the system's busted, that we bailed out the bankers, it's wrong. The difference is they don't blame immigrants, they blame capital. That's it. Now, the question is which one's more resonant for people. I don't know why. I really genuinely don't understand why. But in certain moments, the immigration story becomes more powerful. But whenever the anti-immigrant um, thing has come up, what's happened is American business likes cheap labor. So they were always into importing the Irish or the Poles or whoever happened to be, because that was the next influx of cheap labor, which would keep costs down, which would mm -hmm. increase profits, right? Well, along comes globalization and liberalization. And what happens is I don't need to bring the workers to me. I can bring my capital to the workers. Yeah. And once I do that, I don't give a anymore about immigration. So all those immigration forces that were kept in check by business are no longer kept in check. They were just sitting there waiting to be mobilized. But my question is, why is there a left populism? Why is it millennials overwhelmingly like that type of populism rather than the other type? Why is it they don't care about, by and large, to the same extent as boomers do, for example, about uh, whether someone comes from an immigrant background or immigration in the States? They care quite rightly about student debt and climate change. Right? So there's a constituency for an entirely different populism. What to me is key is that the center parties that have run the show everywhere since the 1940s have failed and have been seen to be complicit in a bankrupt order that basically sent their sons to Iraq for no gain and destroyed their wealth in the housing crisis and the financial crisis that followed and hollowed out the jobs that they had next so that basically they're working harder than ever for less and less cash. And they get told by people like Hillary Clinton that we're celebrating the legacy and everything's great. And that just rings not just not true, it's just like, how much do you want me to be annoyed by people like you? Right. Speak about England, about to do a hard exit from Europe. How soon could bad results discredit that whole game, change the tune of our politics? Brexit, after all, came before Donald Trump. So let's think it through. You do a hard Brexit, you import two-thirds of your food, your currency crashes, you get inflation at the same time, wages are panning. I mean, if he gets away with it, what Boris will do is massive tax cuts to cushion the blow. So, you know, in a sense, the right have always done MMT, they just do it through tax cuts. Well, you know, do they really think the EU is a bad idea? It is true that the most Googled search in the UK the day after the referendum was, what is the EU? And there's a great deal of information in that. Uh, what they were resented was, once again, the elites from London, who had blown up the world in 2008, who'd lied to them about the dodgy dossier in 45 minutes in Iraq, who'd sent their kids off to war, who came back after a decade of extreme austerity in the provinces and said, uh, right, lads, the entire establishment, left, right, and center, plus the banking community, plus everybody, international organization, all these people who sit in the fancy seats in the planes, they're the ones who think you should not do this. Of course they're going to do it. It's the only chance you've had to give them a finger. Mark, you're seeing ruin ahead for post-Brexit. What is the future of that populist energy? So here's how I think and I hope, and this may be wishful thinking, I see this playing out. And this comes from work that I've done, but also from a reading of my colleague, Jonathan Hopkins, who's at the LSE, his forthcoming book, Basically on Populism. And he notes something, which is an empirical observation, but also a bit explanatory. So the financial crisis happens. Most countries in Europe were not involved in Iraq, right? But they had reasons to distrust their own elites. 
the Spanish right were up to their eyes in tax evasion. The Italian party system's completely corrupt, right? Even the Brits can hardly claim sanctimony these days. And they were involved in Iraq. You have this big financial crisis. So what happens is the incumbents, whoever you are, left or right of the center parties, you get thrown out. And the normal opposition comes in. And that's when the recession really starts to hit. So then the normal opposition either sees its vote share drop the Conservatives in Britain go into coalition with the Liberals, for example. Or alternatively, they get thrown out, and then the other guys come back. But all the time, the centre party's vote share is shrinking. And the stuff on the corners, on the edges, your EFDs on the right, okay, your Cerises on the left, they're the ones that start to pop up on the side, and they start to get more and more. What you're seeing now is, if you look at Germany, the Social Democratic Party, which at its heyday was pulling 40% of the vote, is now sitting nationally on 17 to 16%. They're a corpse. So in 2014, I think it was, they gave me an award in Germany for my austerity book. And I went over to the SPD headquarters and I gave a speech to 600 Social Democrats. You can see the text of the speech on Jacobin. And I told them exactly what I thought of them. And I said, you are two electoral cycles away from defeat. Hmm. Because rather than being the people who defend the interests of the working class, you have become the helper up for the CDU for big business and for finance. And you will rightly be punished for this. So you can imagine that went down really well. <laughs> but I was exactly right. And they're now on 17%. Merkel's coalition is fracturing in the same way that the Tory party's electoral coalition is fracturing. Into the Brexit hardliners and then more and more defections to the Liberal Democrats. So you're seeing this massive realignment of party systems everywhere. The Democrats and Republicans hold it together simply because they're not really parties. They're temporary electoral coalitions over a very, very federalized place where Congress has a lot of power and the president is a unique position. But basically what you're seeing in the Democrats is the same thing you're seeing in the Republicans. Trump was a leveraged buyout for the dead soul of the Republicans. Hmm. He took them over and Trumpified them. There was nothing left of the old... Think, remember Jeb? Oh. Right. No, this is important. Common cause Jeb or whatever Exclamation point. Jeb exclamation point. They spent $100 million on the primaries on Jeb exclamation point. No resonance of the Republican base. And what do you think the Democrats... Why do you think they're so afraid of AOC? Because what she represents is the end of the line for centrist Democrats. Thank you. And I they're think that- terrified of that. So this realignment's happening everywhere, right? So what happens next? I think that the right version of populism predominates, that Salvini will come back in Italy, it's highly probable Trump will win two terms, and we'll basically be in, let's not do anything about redistribution, let's blame immigrants and let's deny climate change. And at the end of that electoral cycle, it becomes so obvious that that's not working, and so many boomers have finally slipped the mortal coil, and so many millennials are outraged, that you flip and you get the left populist coalition. Then you get your Green New Deal, then you get your move. Now, do they do it fast enough that it actually makes meaningful difference in people's lives, or does it get written up by the right as a giant waste of public money, and then the right come back in again emboldened? We don't know, but that's how it's going to go. What do we call this post-right populism coalition? I have no idea. I'll look at this functionally. There's a giant structural problem called climate change. Either forces arise to deal with it or we die. I don't care what they're called. I couldn't care less what they're called. And it's 10 years away anyway before we get serious, sadly. So, you know, let's talk about the election that's coming up. So Trump, as usual, I think, plays a blinder because he understands the instincts of people, whereas Democrats think they have interests. And people don't have interests. They have emotions and instincts. 
and he plays a blinder with it, and he has a base which is fanatically loyal to him. So even when farmers are being absolutely pummeled, you know he's going to carry the farm states. It's not about that. So what has he got on the other side? Well, to a certain extent, as much as I admire Warren and I like her stuff, it's basically the electoral problem is, is she going to be seen basically as a slightly more left, slightly smarter, and a bit more honest version of Hillary Clinton? Because if she is, then there's a big problem because there's about 40 million American white men who seem to be inveterately sexist. So that's a problem. Is the question whether Elizabeth Warren is a shined up version of Hillary Clinton or that she will be seen that way? Seen as, portrayed very effectively. Think about what Trump is doing with the squad, right? Are these four people so terrifying they deserve that attention? No, because I don't want you to think about the fact that when Bernie and Elizabeth go on Fox and do a Fox Town Hall, they get most of the audience agreeing with them and what they're doing is perfectly reasonable. We need to kill that. I need to get in people's head that the Democratic Party has been taken over by Muslims and socialists. And I'm going to call them the squad and I'm going to call her Pocahontas, which goes to her credibility or truth. I don't want to talk about policies. I'm all about affect. I'm all about emotion. I'm all about instinct. Now, you put Elizabeth up there, she's vulnerable to those things in a way in which he is not. Now, he's vulnerable in loads of other things. His handling of climate change is abysmal. His handling of mass shootings is beyond insensitive. The fact that he flip-flops from one phone call with the NRA shows he's got no desire or credibility to do anything about something that people really care about. Uh, his stance on immigration rightly enrages people who are you know, at least not inveterately opposed to this stuff. So he's weaker now than he's been. The China trade war, there's no end in sight. It just right. goes on and on. There's, when do you know when he's won, right? So he's weaker. He can be beaten. But he's got 36% that are going to crawl over broken glass to get to a ballot box for him. Who are they going to do that for, Elizabeth? Are they going to do that for Bernie? Can you get that same number for Biden? Biden tests really well amongst elderly boomer males who don't like Trump. Is that your coalition? Is that who you're going to get in? It's a tough one. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm actually more positive that it can be done than I've been in the past three years. But he's got that 36% baked into the cake. Some other Democrats needs to inspire that type of fanatical loyalty to get over the hurdle. So when you and I hear people talk about, oh, it's just turnout, we just need to get a few people here, a few people there. Think about what happens if you put up your most centrist candidate, who's basically an empty suit. He's a 75-year-old, big, tall, white guy, and he seems to have no policies whatsoever. But he tests well with Republicans, right? How is that going to work? Because do you think that the people who get excited, who are going to carry a Democratic platform, Democratic message, are going to go out for him? I'm not. Mark, I picture you, if Elizabeth Warren becomes president, and Cory Booker, her vice president, I imagine you calling in once a week for half an hour and coaching them through this massive agenda, including free college education and public option health care, not to mention restructuring our energy industry. What's the order of priority here? And what are going to be the toughest nuts to crack in a structural reorganization? Well, this goes back to the point about, although I believe that politics is important, I think that in the last instance, economics is determinate. And the reason I said earlier, I think they're 10 years too early. Until the boomer class and people with money start to lose money because Mm. of climate change, they're simply not going to allow it. Because it's a massive net transfer against their assets and against them. 
So they're just not going to do it. They're not going to allow it. So even if they win, Congress will be against them, the banking industry against them, the fossil fuel industry will be against them. And it's a great fight to fight. I mean, just moving through the courts just now, we have in Rhode Island lots of lawsuits against them. Nice thing about being small, you can do cases that stand up federal standing so you can move through the courts. There's the Exxon New lawsuit, all about how Exxon knew about climate change and covered it up just like the tobacco companies. There's lots of fights to be fought. So my suggestion would be fight the one that's going to have the biggest long-term impacts because you're not at the end of four years going to turn around and go, well, didn't we achieve everything we wanted? That's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen until Naples and the people in Naples lose real money. What would it be that change with the best benefit over the longest term? I don't think there's any one thing. I think sort of restructuring, the only thing that matters over the long term for our children and our children's children, but even for our children now, these things are accelerating, is that so that they don't live in a Mad Max-type world by the time that they are our age, Mm -hmm. is we really, really need to restructure the entire energy basis of the country. So if you could basically start work on buildings and do the smart grid and spend a lot of money doing that and then increase massively on renewables, that would be in and of itself a fabulous thing to do. Well, what about jobs? What about healthcare? Well, pick what you think sustainable. I mean, let's say you just go for universal healthcare, you abolish all the healthcare institute, the companies, you rationalize and nationalize hospitals, you open a giant department of public health, you basically do the NHS for the United States, right? This would be the biggest employer on the planet. Mm-hmm. Immediately, right? Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, there's, there's costs as well as benefits of doing this. This is a massive job. By the time that you're finished doing that, you look around and basically the water's halfway up Miami Beach. Yeah. How are you going to power that hospital if you can't get electricity? That's what you should be thinking about. So I'm long green tech. That's where I go. But we're not ready for it. We're not cognitively ready for it. We're not politically ready for it. So if you can get healthcare along the way, great, knock yourself out. My question is, how are you going to sustain that 20 years from now? Mark Blythe, we're going to see what happens, and we're going to talk to you before it happens. Always a pleasure. Boom, boom. Thank you, Mark Blythe. Pleasure. Mark Blythe is the Rhodes Professor of International Economics at the Watson Institute at Brown University. His key book is Austerity, the History of a Dangerous Idea. At Open Source, we are proud and delighted to be the new affiliate of Hub and Spoke. It's an energetic collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. Check out Zach Davis's Ministry of Ideas about intellectual history in our time. His latest is a two-part take called Progressive Souls about the intersection of religion and progressive politics. Listen in at ministryofideas.org. And check out all the Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. And of course, check out all the open source shows at radioopensource.org. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to the first ever and longest running podcast. And if you like what you hear, think of leading something in the tip jar for the hardest working team in radio. Our show is produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our global reserve currency. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source.